before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, because it wouldn't be The Endgame without him, uh, our man in Seattle himself, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, Grant. How are you today? I am well. I'm well. Looking forward to our first returning guest of the series. Yes. Well, so, well, I guess without further ado, we should just jump in and talk to James, a.k.a. Oh, the Lord of the Dark Matter. The Lord of the Dark Matter, James Aitken, who, who was, what, a second... Our second guest, I reckon, after Mark Cahodes put right. us was in, our, a, in a headlock. James yeah, we, was the first real guest we had. Exactly. No offense, Mark, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we, James has very kindly agreed to come back on and, and sit and chat with us over uh, what's happened this year and what he expects to happen next year. So, as Bill says, without further ado, let's uh, let's get to the Lord of the Dark Matter. James, thank you, mate, for coming back and doing this again. Oh, you're welcome, Grasshopper. <laughs> We thought we may have scared you. We thought we may have scared you off the first time. No, it was so entertaining, and and what listeners missed is the hour of banter afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you were our first legitimate guest. Uh, we can't quite uh, can't quite count Mark Cahotis as a, as a real guest since he was one of the schemers of the plan in the first place. Exactly right. Many wouldn't count him legitimate except for this platform. That's for sure. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> not anyway. going to touch that one. No, probably best not. Well, listen, James, the, the reason for our reconvening uh, around the cauldron is is twofold, really. One is to hopefully take a look back at, at what has been a an extraordinary, unprecedented year. I hate using that word, but I, I kind of get forced to a lot these days. And then to kind of get your take uh, on what's to come in 2021 as we kind of make the transition to, to then. Obviously, there was vaccines in place, which we didn't have before, as all right. kinds of things happened. So, uh, you know, I, I'd love to kind of, get a big picture download of, of your thoughts on 2020 as a year. And then Bill and I can kind of dig into that. And uh, perhaps then the three of us can kick, a, kick around 2021. Yeah, sounds like, a, sounds like a plan. And let me start with a bit of a framework and it's going to be a little bit blunt, but all my friends in Texas have a very great phrase to describe showboating. And they say, you know, XYZ was just trying to big dick it. So they're out there, you know, it can apply to turning up to a dinner party with an 82 Bordeaux or turning up with a shotgun to a quail shoot or whatever. But, you know, the reason I start with that rather direct metaphor of big dicking it is because there's a lot of big dicking going on right now in finance. And I think it might be useful for us, the three of us, to try a slightly different approach. Amen to that, brother. And I think, I think Grant, that it might be useful uh, to reflect on mistakes. And before we start to think about what's going right and, and what might one own entering 2021 or even today, I think we ought to reflect on this extraordinary humbling year. And for all the things that have happened, if I was to arrive at the biggest mistake I made this year was needlessly overcomplicating too many things. 
And top of that list would be, as Bill knows in particular, investing hours and hours of my time reading the fine print of all these Fed facilities or other central bank facilities. And you know what? It didn't matter. It just didn't matter because the real story was that for the first time, just to use the Fed, for example, the Fed was directly supporting primary and secondary credit markets, or at least doing it in a more blatant way than the various maiden lane vehicles. That's really important. And then related to that, the other thing, and of course there's a little bit of hindsight bias speaking here, but that's the whole point when you're reflecting on your errors. The other mistake I made was needlessly overcomplicating the arrival of fiscal policy. And if you just said, right, what are all these people doing? Where are we going? Okay, I'm not going to look at another COVID chart. I'm just not. doesn't matter anymore if you're a market participant. Yeah. I could get on endless conference calls with epidemiologists. didn't matter. It didn't matter. And so I want to call myself out because I've made plenty of mistakes in 2020, one of which was not being aggressive enough in buying things. But the primary mistake was needlessly overcomplicating the Fed's response, other central bank response in the context of fiscal policy being turned on in a very big way. So, so James, just to be clear, yeah. what, you're, what you're saying is um, that because of the stepped up fiscal response, right. uh, once, once, for instance, the Fed decided to cross the Rubicon Mm. Well, with the SPIV that the Treasury set up for them, right. the de- details literally don't matter anymore because they've indicated they're willing to do whatever it takes, to use Mar- Draghi's expression. And yeah. therefore, if you find something that details that would have hung them up, they'd have just done an end and run around it. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I think a phrase I've used or been forced to use a lot of, a lot of on a lot of occasions over the past dozen years or so is that it often pays to leave your brain at home yeah. and, and you raise whatever it takes. Well, that was a great moment to leave your brain at home. Oh, why it won't work or he won't be able to do QE didn't matter. But there's an added layer to this, which is valuations. And if we use the metaphor of whatever it takes, you know, who wasn't short European banks, who wasn't short or underweight European credit of all kinds, you know, and if a new actor walks onto the stage and says, Hey, I got this and the initial valuations are quite stretched on the downside, all it takes is one or two people to cover and you're off. And that's not a bad way of thinking of the March-April period. I mean, to be clear, it was obvious to quite a few people at that time. They were buying with both hands saying, look, this is bad, it's grim, it's complicated, it's messy, but I can see what the reaction function is. That's all I need to know because some of these valuations are too compelling. Let me, uh, yeah, I I understand what you're saying. I think perhaps you may uh, be being a bit too hard on your viewpoint from this perspective. I don't think there were that many guys that were that clever that were buying that saw that it was going to turn. I think, and again, I'm uh, this is the market, we don't know. Sure. Uh, I, I it seems to me that the 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 Mike Green discovery, so to speak, the mm. the the size of the passive flows, which didn't really get shut down, right. the, you know, the, the the Mr. Automatic showed up and with buy tickets and it stabilized, and then maybe a few guys joined in and maybe five guys covered a few shorts. I'm not sure. saying you're not right, yeah. 
But I'm saying I I firmly believe there was an element of that going on. And um, so I think it was harder to see your way through that than maybe you're suggesting that some guys it was easy for. Yeah, I think I think there's a structural element that more and more people are aware of. And, you know, kudos to to Mike, who's done all his own work on this. And as a result of that and a result of Mike's generosity on Twitter in particular, I just think it's fair to say that a lot of people are now quote unquote experts on the passive flow. But Bill, to make it tangible for people listening, let's let's just reflect for a second on what happened in late January and early February. It was absolutely clear by the end of January that this was going to be a big mess. I mean, by the end of January, China was shutting down everything left, right and centre, and the market assumed or seemed to assume that, oh, it's just a Chinese thing, it's contained to China, even though it wasn't. Mm. And if you look back to the first two weeks of February, the stock market went straight up. And you're like, how can this be possible in the context of this obvious pandemic, even though it hadn't quite been labelled a pandemic, although it soon would be? And that speaks to the structure of these markets because the only people you'd think who are possibly buying stocks with both hands into the teeth of a massively, obviously disruptive pandemic must be non-price sensitive investors. In other words, investors, if we can call them that, who are only focused on quantity and do not care about price. And it's interesting to just go back and look at some of these charts, which I did the other day, of of that transition from January to February. It's just astonishing in the context of what was happening. James, let me me jump in there. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about there, because I, I, like you, I I stopped reading about COVID within a market context early on. And and honestly, I I wish it was because I was smart. It was because I was just so tired of it all and and the fact that I couldn't find anybody who wasn't an expert at either end of the thing. It was just, it was just exhausting. Mm. So I kind of shut that out and I, and I quickly understood that it, that it, the economy didn't matter. It was all about markets. Yeah. Um, but what's been interesting for me to read literally in the last few days, there was a piece I saw yesterday from Morgan Stanley talking about they're bullish because they see $2.8 trillion of liquidity being thrown at the markets Mm. next year so it feels and i think you're absolutely right in what you said but it feels that now we've kind of reached the point where as chris cole talked about the Ouroboros, right the snake eating its tail we can now get bullish because it doesn't matter because more liquidity is coming because that's all that matters is there a point in that self-reflexive circle where this does become a problem because i've I've been trying to figure out where that might be and i'm struggling to be clear you mean that all this liquidity is all that matters and it will just force the markets higher no matter what it doesn't matter we're bullish because liquidity well you you could have argued that at various stages over the past decade for sure for sure i would say from the perspective of equity markets uh one critical question would be earnings momentum and if you look at the performance of certain companies year to date and the comps they will yeah. have to meet year on year as we work through 2021, uh, almost impossible. Yeah. So liquidity, yes, as a backstory, no question it's here to stay. 
But in terms of the passive machine, which is the related question, I mean, it's here to stay as well. And it's a very tricky one if you are a stock picker. But then again, it's been a very tricky one for stock pickers for some time. Because if you're only a sliver, if you're a bottom-up investor and you're only 5 to 10% of daily turnover in your favourite stocks or your portfolio of stocks, you know, you better be very comfortable. You know what all the machines are going to be doing. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have day after day after yeah. day of just bleeding and it's psychologically draining. So to be clear, if I understood your question, the liquidity is not going away anytime soon. It'll probably be, you know, at least as much as we're seeing now will continue well through 2021 and potentially beyond, subject to what inflation does. And I think what will differentiate this is my best guess, what will differentiate various asset classes in 2021, no prizes here really, is just those companies that have been able to restructure this year, a far better position to grow next year as the world slowly but steadily recovers, and also have, uh, have considerable earnings momentum. Um, and then in terms of dollar, the dollar and commodities and stuff like that, I imagine we'll get into that later in the conversation. But there, but there, there, there seems to be that there's when you talk about that that idea that liquidity was all that mattered over the last what almost twelve years now, which is absolutely right. Yeah. <clears throat> until until really this week, as far as I could see, there there was there felt like there was a need for some kind of intellectual veneer to be applied to your reasoning. We all knew that this was liquidity based, but yeah. now it feels as though Morgan Stanley come and say we're bullish. Because liquidity's coming. It's basically, yes, everything's gone to shit, but well, so much liquidity's coming, you can just buy everything. And, and it's like yeah. almost like we don't need to pretend anymore. Yeah, it's the sell side equivalent of big dicking it with the year ahead. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. hey, you know, uh, I'm going to, uh, S&P's going to 4,225. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Could happen. But I think to, again, think about the practical considerations, you know, you look at someone like Bob Schiller and his cake model, which a lot of people have been relying on for a long time yeah. to say, oh, no, no, we've got to be really cautious here because cake, you know, cake ratios and everything else tell us that stocks are expensive. And then on November the 30th, Bob Schiller publishes a note talking about the excess cape yield or ECY. In other words, Bob Schiller has got a little bit of FOMO. So he, he publishes an updated cape Earnings, earnings CAPE yield or CAPE plus ECY to justify current valuations of stocks. Right. I believe the term for that, mate, is um, CAPE, CAPE before bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, shades of a lot of things that have happened before, but I'm just looking at the paper now, and here we have this Nobel Prize winner who we all know, and November 30th, making sense of sky-high stock prices i.e. why I was wrong. Yes. And, you know, FOMO is very powerful for investors. You know, you see your neighbour getting rich and you think, get me in too. Well, it appears that FOMO is just as powerful for uh, economists and academics as well. So guess what? If discount rates remain really low, then stock prices can go a lot higher. Wow. Yeah. Give that man another Nobel Prize, Right. Yeah, well, not all superheroes fear cape. I guess is the uh, no, is the, no, that's is, very, very. Is very, the air come from that one? 
But, 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 but I think it just reinforces my point, James. Is, is that okay? Listen, we need we can we can strip away the intellectual veneer now. We can strip sure. away that we have to sound like there's a reason for this, hmm. and it's just buy it because it's going up now. And, and I just wonder if that if that potentially presages a point in time where it doesn't, because everyone's assuming it's going to go up. Is there any way you can see that being a potential death knell for the market, or is the liquidity just going to be enough? Well, it, it depends. I mean, the liquidity is, to be clear, the liquidity is not going anywhere. I mean, even if inflation yeah. picks up a little bit into the second quarter of next year, no central bank in the world is going to turn any of this off. And on okay. fiscal policy, just an important point here, we have had what you can call state-contingent monetary policy for many, many years. But there's a wrinkle. Over the past decade, you've had central bank guidance, which has been based on central bank forecasts. Going forward, you're going to have central bank guidance and reaction functions based on actual outcomes. And the Fed in particular has been very clear on that. In other words, we'll keep pushing until we get what we want. In addition to that, you have some countries around the world deploying state contingent fiscal guidance. And Australia has been at the lead of that, with Treasurer Frydenberg stating over and over again, we will keep fiscal support in place unless and until the Australian unemployment rate is heading well below six. Yeah. And that's different. Now, it's also the right thing to do when you've got such an output gap as the one we think we have. It's completely right. But that's a really powerful force when you have outcomes-based monetary policy working hand-in-hand hand with outcomes-based yeah, fiscal point. policy. Now, quite frankly, Grant, it's what we were supposed to do in 09, 10 and 11, but we didn't because of the Tea Party and the smash up in Europe. And that's why the recovery took as long as it did. You know, we can call it and argue whether it was recovery or not. So look, I, I'm not sure that everyone's saying this is all about liquidity. I think that's the backstory. But if we want to make us think about it in practical terms, look, for right or wrong, uh, right or wrong, central banks are telling us that short-term interest rate markets will not be doing a lot for a long time to come, okay? Yeah. It's the first point. Second point, for better or worse, and, you know, we haven't eliminated the default cycle, but credit risk premia have been squashed. And if we take central banks at face value, they will not tolerate much of a rise in credit risk premium or widening of spreads. And then if we assume that long-term interest rates remain broadly well-behaved, well, guess what? The only, the only risk premium or risk premium singular for asset allocators to harvest over years to come is going to be the equity risk premium. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, this, this, and there's this tension, isn't there, between, gosh, some things look extraordinarily rich versus the reality of asset allocators worldwide just looking for adequate returns over the next 10 or 15 years. And to put it in simple mathematical terms, if we assume that the equity risk premium in the United States, say the S&P 500, is 4%, and I'm a sovereign wealth fund or an endowment trying to take a 15 or 20 year view, 
then if I take 4%, the equity risk premium is roughly right, then over the next 15 to 20 years, I could probably expect to generate 60 to 80% on the S&P 500, right? It's that kind yeah. of dilemma. Yeah. And they all know that they have to unlearn everything they thought they knew about asset allocation. And that's where this is so dangerous. So it, it, you can see it in so many in sectors and, and spots that it's like, oh, gosh, I know I shouldn't be doing this, yeah. but I have to. And, and look, you know, I look at so many things on the, on the Bloomberg and I look at so many valuations. I look at, you know, you, you go down the list of things that make no sense. And we can draw all the analogies with 1999 and the early part of 2000, which we probably should. But there's one key rider. In the early two, in, in the start of 2000, January 2000, yeah. 10-year tips in the United States were about 410 basis points. And now they're, let's say for simplicity, minus 100. Gosh. Yeah. You know, there's the conundrum. Because if we think things are crazy today and a lot of things are driven by liquidity, however we want to uh, calibrate that, then you've got this backstory, which is discount rates, whether they be nominal or real discount rates, force people to play. And who knows how silly this may get. Well, it seems to me, I mean, we have a unique moment in financial history. I don't mean this second or this day, but we... I think it's not debatable, really, that we've had an equity bubble of some magnitude in the States because you can only get multi-billion dollar companies or hundred billion dollar companies that are some gigantic multiple of revenues um, um, or, or the, a $50 billion companies that doubles on a day. All of these things, they only happen in manias and they happen at the end of uh, wild periods. What's particularly unique about now, uh, and this is the layman's version of what you just said, in my opinion, is that we have a period where the central banks have completely abdicated any any uh, belief that excesses are possible and excesses may be dangerous. The only outcome that they seem to want to solve for is... Uh, employment and and really uh, inflation as an extension of that because yes. they've tied the two together and they they think that inflation somehow signifies GDP growth as asked backwards as that thought is. So we have a moment, it, we're at a moment in time where it doesn't really matter how out of control financial markets become, they, they're not going to do anything. Mm. Uh and so I think the question that I have as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about, reading about, and fighting bubbles or mm. trying to capture the other side of bubbles, how, how does one navigate this period? I know enough to know you can't fight it. Sure. Um, and I know a lot of people are just going to join in because this, the, the, the stuff I just said doesn't matter to them. But I don't see how any 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 person that's allocating real capital that matters to them 
can't or doesn't somehow have to weigh these two things. We know what the fiscal and monetary policy plans are and the, and the response is going to be and the errors are going to be on more, not less. Mm. But then you've got this epic risk that's developing. I, I just don't know how to balance those in, when I think about it for myself. Let's think about it in accounting terms, mark to market, right? <laughs> now, if the three of us, you know where I'm going with this already, but imagine the three of us happily have a billion dollars to allocate over the next 10 years. And we conclude that nearly everything is very richly valued, to put it mildly. Right, right, right. But we have no redemption risk. And we meet as an investment committee with our, with our bosses or colleagues, you know, once a quarter or twice a year. So we think, gosh, everything's fully valued, but I don't want to explain why I've taken a bit of a chinning over the next, between now and the next meeting. You know, so what do I do? Well, obviously, I put as much money as I can in a non-mark-to-market vehicle. And what would that be? <laughs> Private equity. Mm-hmm. Right. And if I wanted to be slightly facetious, I would say that the big problem with subprime in 07 and 08... Yeah. yeah, I know where you're going. Right? Yeah. Oh, too little. Go ahead and say it for the other people who don't know what you're going to say. Yeah, too little of it yeah. was held in non-marked market. Right, exactly. exactly right. Exactly right. You know, we, need, we, need, we, need, we had three levels of accounting. We needed a fourth. That's right. Yeah. Never mark to market. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. You can put whatever garbage you like in a non-marked to market vehicle as long yeah. as you've got no redemption risk, right? But look, this is not to disparage all the very clever people in private equity. Uh, But obviously they are financial engineers par excellence. Their cost of borrowing has never been lower and may go lower yet. So if I'm an asset allocator and I say, gosh, you know, 25% plus of the S&P 500 is the fangs or whatever, gee whiz, um, what happens if there's antitrust or any, any wobble there? Well, the whole market falls down. Gosh, that's embarrassing. Oh, I know. I'll just get David Rubenstein on speed dial. Right. It's that, that's part of the incentive here is like, how can I participate or continue to participate in these booming markets without embarrassing myself? Mm-hmm. Right? So it's no wonder that people are taking what we think of as a liquid bets, but really I think the incentive is non-mark-to-market bets and hopefully we can ride through any uh, any setbacks but i mean we're seeing this with the with the spac frenzy right? oh, we're seeing this gosh, exact yeah. thing i mean it, yeah. that, that that's this taken to absolute extremes we're back to blank check companies yeah um and and again you know bill you chronicled this by mm. the day when it when it was happening before in a slightly different form so for you this must be ringing so many bells in your head about what happened 20 years ago Absolutely. I mean, if if I was uh, uh, intent or if I was still running a short fund, God forbid, uh, (laughs) on one hand, I'd say, God, every single thing that you need to see about excesses and then some is occurring. That's been happening for a while. But as a practitioner, I went and I went down my checklist, I'd say, what's the Fed doing? Uh, I can't. No, no. My checklist would come back. You can't, you can't fight, you, this. You, yeah. you can't go near yeah. this at all. And, uh, and, and knowing what their intentions are. So, uh, part, part of me, 
And the other part of it also is adding in the passive factor because, you know, that that also distorts it and makes it hard. we, We can't look at the market as we used to in a collection of people and the crowd would get to a place and they would tip over. And the authorities weren't going to ride to the rescue in an instant. So it was worthwhile to, if you saw a bubble develop, to try to think about catching the other side. Now, half the participants, as James noted, Mm -hmm. only care about quantity. Mm -hmm. And and so you can't rattle them. You have to indirectly rattle them by laying off the people, the corporations, so the corporations don't put the money in. So, So that's hard to rattle. So then the other half that are you know, that are, that are doing what they're doing, you know, keep getting rewarded. So all I know is it would have to get even crazier. But then when you factor in the fact that central banks are not going to do anything negative, I, I, I think we're in the midst of creating the biggest bubble in the history of the world and then some, but I have no idea when it ends or how it might end. Let's, let's break that down into a few components because yeah, I mean, who knows how far, this could go yet. And just keep that one thing in mind. You know, 10-year tips, first quarter of 2000, 400-plus basis points. Positive. Shocking. Yeah. Now minus 100. So what's every asset allocator on the planet going to have to do to keep up? They're going to have to keep taking risk in one way or another. That's the, that's the first point. Second point is just to tease out a little bit more about central banks and the Fed and and one thing that's broadly, not, not always, but broadly served me well in understanding central banks is imagining what I would do if I were them with their legally binding mandates. And, and we won't get into all the moving parts of that. But think of it this way. For 20 plus years, central banks have not been able to meet their inflation mandates. And yes, there's self-imposed inflation mandates in some cases, but in other parts of the world, they're actually legally binding mandates. And along comes 2020. And you think to yourself, oh gosh, you're a central bank. You think, oh man, this is just carnage. We've got job losses. We've got defaults. We've got everything. We're definitely going to have an undershoot of inflation. What do we do? And the conclusion is not much different than it's been for the past decade plus. And that is to say, if you're in a, in a services-dominated world where there appears to be excess or perpetual supply or new supply, and it's cheap, and we're tilting away from manufacturing, at least in the West, which everyone knows, then the only way you can hope to meet your inflation target is via financial markets and keeping financial conditions as loose as possible for as long as possible. So yes, it's, it's, it's unfortunate perhaps, but from their perspective, what else can they do other than to arrest any tightening for any reason in financial conditions? So what I see all these central bankers in particular doing is like, look, we have no choice. We've got to do this and we've got to keep it easy. There's occasional lip service to financial stability. Frankly, I can't remember the last time I read any IMF financial stability report or Bank of England or Fed. Frankly, it doesn't matter. 
It's just a placeholder in case something blows up and they can say, oh, oh, oh yeah. Remember that thing we wrote five years ago? Huh. Yeah, great. Thanks, fellas. You know, like leverage loans or CLOs. Yeah. No one's really trying to ratchet that down. And, and look, you know, as long as financial conditions are the be-all and end-all of how central banks think about these matters in terms of getting them closer to the inflation objectives, then, you know, what are we going to do? And, and I think, Bill, you're right. It, it, it is tempting to draw all those 1999 and first quarter of 2000 analogies. But what's so different about this cycle is that if inflation does show up for any period of time, every central bank on the world is going to be throwing a party and cheering as opposed to trying yeah. to stop it. Well, let's get to that. Let's let's get to that. If on, part. Let, let, yeah, let, let's, uh, can we just hold off on inflation for okay. one second? Because there's just something I want to I want to just right. try and figure. And when when I think of you know the points you made there, James, about being an allocator is so true, right? And you, normally you'll sit there with if you think of traffic lights, you'll think of conditions to put this money to work. You're going to be green. Everything's great. Let's go. We have got tailwinds everywhere. This is a great time to put money to work. Yeah, then you've got caution. We could be at the end of the cycle, amber light flashing, and then you've got the downside of the cycle, which for those of you old enough to remember used to happen. Um, but what we've just seen, obviously, is the single greatest economic catastrophe in yeah. our lifetime, certainly, and those of our parents and grandparents. I mean, sure. I don't know how far back you'd have to go. Sure. So the biggest red light that has flashed in front of traffic for multiple generations, mm. has flashed and markets have gone screaming higher. Mm. And so it feels as though you've basically, what you've done is you've taken away, it's now safe to drive through red lights. It's now safe to put your foot down when you come to a red light because, you know, th th it's going to be okay. No matter what happens, this is going to be saved. And, and I, so I'm just interested, when, when we're in a situation like that, and those are the prevailing conditions, I totally get the let's throw everything at private equity, let's throw everything at the equity market. I totally get it. But at the same time, I find it interesting that there's so much talk, and you brought up the, the IMF, we've, we've talked before about mm. the WEF, all this talk about the Great Reset. Mm. You know, And this is clearly a very well thought out and orchestrated attempt to put this idea of a Great Reset as as far out into the financial and, and physical community as possible, hinting that we realise there's something needs to be done. But generally speaking, you, you, you can't have those things without a crisis. But people don't, we don't need a reset. We talk about the stock market's an all-time high, the economy's bouncing back, we've got a vaccine. So how do you hold those two opposing thoughts together? Sorry, to be clear, what do you mean? Who's imposing a great reset? What's well, no, no, I'm reset? just talking about the the... the the WEF have put papers on it. The IMF have been talking about a great reset. Oh, Lagarde has been talking about the great. So they're choosing their words carefully. There's obviously discussions have been had about we are going to need at some point to reset this whole thing because this is unsustainable. All right. Well, the way I'd approach a lot of that commentary is great reset in that fiscal policy at long last has become, have become available in scale and happily monetary policy is no longer the only game in town. And right. part of the problem, let's, let's reflect on the past 12 years, a really big part of the problem coming out of 08 and 09 was frankly that fiscal policy was turned off way too soon 
and monetary policy became the only game in town and then was forced to do things that monetary policy was never, ever supposed to do. But again, Grant, thinking from the perspective of someone voting on monetary policy at a central bank, what are they going to do? They can't throw their hands up and say, look, we tried our best, it just didn't work out, thanks for coming. That's that's just never going to happen. So when these people talk about reset, I think they're talking about you know, the required fiscal policy, tax changes to come and other matters that have been talked about for a long time, but have been postponed. But there's a flip side to the reset as well. To be clear, it's not all bad news and far from it. The fact that Europe has in some fashion arrived at a point of joint and several liability. I mean, to a Eurosceptic like me, it doesn't matter. It's here, it's real. And that cuts off a lot of the left tail of the euro-denominated yep. asset distribution. So I see the reset perhaps too narrowly when they all go on and on about reset. I think of it as, thank goodness, fiscal policy is now being deployed. Thank goodness that certain jurisdictions that can afford to borrow are actually getting into it in a big way. And thank goodness that they're committing to sustained fiscal policy until labour market or labour market slack has been eliminated. Well, not fully eliminated, but is on the road to being eliminated. And, and just on that, look, as much as we all understand the challenges for risk assets, if central banks for any reason, I mean, can you imagine, just to pause there, imagine the day we've had two years of Jay Powell or Lyle Brainard or whoever ends up running the Fed at the end of next year. Look, um, we are not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And then you have a press conference and he goes, um, you, you know how we, um, well, you know, we, uh, gosh, golly, uh, um, it's not 2023, it's um, January 22. Oops. You know. Now, by the way, I'm not sure that happens. But you, you, so we all know the challenges of navigating the handoff from very, very low central bank rates to something tiny positive. I was going to get to that, but... Yeah, we'll come to that. But, but I think what's, what's encouraging is that the fiscal policy is probably going to be around for a long time to come. And that's the, that's the reset. And I think it's welcome because monetary policy was getting way, way too deep into the distributional game. Yeah. And that should always and only be the the jurisdiction, if you will, of fiscal policy. <laughs> this is so bizarre because if if we think about this sort of thing and carry it to any sort of reasonable conclusion, like if we extrapolate this for a year or two, as you were sort of doing, the size of the hangover is incomprehensible. And therefore, yeah. then when you think about it that way, you say, well, then they can't stop. And of course, that's 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 where we've been since the central bankers became such activists. And it we can see if we look at it through that prism, we can see how this we're on a never uh, we're on a treadmill we cannot get off of. And yet some yeah. point, some point we're going to get off of it or we're more likely going to be forced off of it. Right. And it, it, it seems to me that I don't see how the bond markets of the world can put up with this indefinitely. I. 
I know the arguments for why the boons can never go down and, you know, why JGBs can never decline it. But, but the fact of the matter is the bond market is going to have an accident. And, and when they, when they try to stop it from expressing its doubt about the ability of all these things to happen with no negative consequences like inflation, Hmm. they'll come in for yield curve control. So it's, we're going to get a running look at the end of the, uh, 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 of them being able to get, get away with this with no markets object objecting, yeah. it seems to me. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's all easy to talk about the fun and games that we can yeah. all pursue, but mm-hmm. we have to keep some part of our brain occupied yeah. about what is, what are going to be the warning signals when it's getting late in the day f- yeah. for this whole scheme. It's tricky because so few of the warning signals that might have served us well even 15 years ago just don't work or, or not allowed to work, I think would be a better description. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. But we, we know that. We know that, don't we? And look, at the highest level, the, the game for 25-plus years has been how to avoid a liquidation event in risk assets. That's, that's been the backstory because exactly. of what that might exactly. mean. But let's, let's, again, break this down into what might trip some of this up. Look, if you're a central bank, and we'll just stick with the Fed because I think that's the easiest one to digest. If you're a central bank telling the world over and over that you think the only route to higher realised inflation is via maximum employment, then quite frankly, you that central bank with that narrative have very, very little tolerance for any sustained tightening in financial conditions. And that is, of course, the Fed. Now, that doesn't mean they're defending the S&P at a level, but they're watching all of this because if we stall here, and let's face it, with rolling lockdowns now coming, we're going to have a bit of an air swing in growth over the next you know, a couple of months or so, it's going to soften. But we know that, don't we, right? But if you, if the Fed's ability to meet their maximum employment objective through which they hope to generate higher average inflation is in any way constrained or restrained by tighter financial conditions, the Fed will act. Okay, it's as simple as that. Now, here's the next part of the problem. When we think about why rates are going up, you'd have to conclude that the only reason that long-term bond yields are going up is because we have made far greater progress on eliminating what is obviously enormous labour market slack, obviously. I mean, industries have been devastated, households devastated. And if we're making far greater progress on labour market slack over the next, say, six to 12 months, and that in turn means that long-term bond yields are higher because, let's face it, you're only going to generate a big reduction in labour market slack, getting people back to work if either wages are rising a lot higher than people anticipate or the economy is doing a hell of a lot better than everyone ever imagined, which frankly are two high-class problems to have. So to be clear, if we're imagining an environment where longer-term yields are higher, we're imagining an environment where global growth is coming in white-hot, 
And I think the second and third quarters of next year could be really great. But you're also imagining simultaneously a world in which we're making much more rapid progress towards eliminating labour market slack than anyone could ever imagine. And again, we could argue that'd be a good problem, that'd be a high class problem to have. Now, as unlikely as those simultaneous developments may seem right now, when here in the Northwest Hemisphere, we're thinking about all these lockdowns and more devastation and uncertainty, it's just, when's it going to end? Well, not too far, we can talk about vaccines in a sec, but, but really, it, it, if rates do go up at some point, either because long-term bond yields are going up. And let's face it, long-term bond yields will be going up because the Fed's happy with them. And the Fed will only be happy with long-term bond yields going up if the economy is evolving much quicker than they imagined, right? And the vaccines have been distributed and people are getting out there and getting after it again. So of course, in that scenario, some of these companies we touched on earlier or sort of in passing, these very high-flying, high uh, ROIC, return on invested capital companies, trading at heroic multiples that have no chance of making their year-on-year -year comps as we yeah. move through the summer of 2021 are going to get smacked. And that sounds like quite a few tech companies, but we don't know yet. So to, to, I come at the question, Bill, about rates as to what can tip this up. And, and you can tell I'm coming first from the economic perspective. If we've got pressure on rates because things are improving far better, far more rapidly than we dreamt, I'd say that's a high-class problem for the world to have, and I think investors will be able to rotate. But if, on the other hand, rates are moving up because there's indigestion in bond markets, then that's a much bigger problem. And, look, I, I don't see indigestion in bond markets yet. By golly, there's been a lot of long-term bonds sold in the United States over the past couple of months. And yet, as best one can tell, they've been digested, right? One way or another, they've been digested. Now, the irony might be that part of the reason all this duration has been digested or absorbed by investors, and yes, of course, the Fed, is because growth, again, is looking a little bit uncertain over the next two months. Inflation remains very low. We did see a bit of a pickup. Through the, uh, through the autumn, but inflation's coming off again. And, you know, people are sort of feeling a little less confident in their vaccine reflation view. So I guess what I'm saying is we're going to get, I mean, I think everyone knows this, we are going to get the inevitable inflation scare as we move into the second quarter of 2021. You know, due to base effects, core and headline inflation will pick up and maybe there's some pressure on rates. But unless we simultaneously, meaning rates higher, but unless we simultaneously believe that the um, that we're making far more rapid progress on eliminating labour market slack, and we are hurtling towards the Fed's objective of maximum unemployment, i.e., they'll know it when they see it. You know, it's very it's difficult now to see the inevitable. Um, inflation scare into the second quarter of next year, again, due to base effects, as anything other than a bit of a speed bump in terms of what's happening in, in, in terms of a speed bump for rates and the long end of the curve. At least that's my best guess now. But just, just to add one other thing, again, trying to make this as, as practical as possible, um, because there's a, you know, we all know there's a 
lot of macro pontification around it these days, but, uh, you know, we need to think about what we actually do with it all. Yeah. And, and Grant, the simplest indicator for me from, from June onwards, and it's been my, one of my favourite cross-checks for many, many years, is just simply the CRB Raw Industrials Index. And for whatever reason, at the end of June this year, it just turned around like a hockey stick yep. and it's never stopped. Yep. And, and for the benefit of listeners, the CRB Raw Industrials Index is an index of non-financialised commodities. It's a, it's a function of pure demand and supply for the most basic of basic commodities. Well, that's the way I think about it. Yep. And in the past week, it's ripped again. So it's telling me that the reflationary tailwinds remain very powerful, at least if I look at the world of basic commodities and, and then commodities more general, which we may come to. So I take away that the reflationary trends remain intact, even though we've got some headline uncertainty. And, you know, we don't know yet. We don't know yet if these powerful reflationary tailwinds will turn into inflationary yeah headwinds but we that's that's one for the second quarter of next year well but let me ask you this when we chatted last spring Mm. your viewpoint was that we'd probably start to see some indications of inflation by now-ish yeah and that we'd probably see it in you know the early part of next year it sounds like you've uh uh, changed your viewpoint on that slightly in that you're talking about a potential inflation scare. Mm. So it sounds like you've downgraded your outlook, so to speak, while yes. you've just given some of the I- ingredients for causing it to happen when you look at these raw materials and what that yeah. may be indicating. So you want to like uh, sort that out for us, please? Yeah, I thought we were going to run into some pretty severe supply side constraints in in labor markets as as key sectors came back to work. And it just hasn't quite happened. Um, I would have thought by now that for all the uncertainty, you would have seen a little bit more tightness emerging in key sectors. Hasn't happened. Obviously, there's headlines you read about in key industries and trucking and everything else and, you know, people getting into cargo and logistics. But that's a given as people race to restock and obviously get the vaccines out the door. So those supply constraints in labour markets didn't pan out as I thought, and certainly not in the time frame I thought, which means that unsurprisingly, there's a lot more slack in labour markets to be eliminated. But the broad reflationary trends remain intact. I mean, if we call them reflation or recovery, I'm not sure. I'm still watching all these different labour markets, just keeping an eye on them. But, you know, we had a little bit of a blip and now we're sort of coming off the boil again. And look, where it comes down to is this. Maybe I overthought it. Maybe that's another mistake for 2020 is, again, overthinking. If you put millions and millions and millions of people out of work, the idea that you will eliminate labour market slack in six months, let alone 12 months, is probably very wishful thinking. And we're not seeing the tightness really come back yet and you can see the fed in particular is troubled by that because the lack of pickup in wages or the absence of sustained wage inflation 
tells the Fed in no uncertain terms that they've got more work to do. And by the way, we haven't mentioned it, but you know, this week's FOMC meeting could be really interesting in terms of operational guidance from the Fed uh, tying their asset purchases to specific economic outcomes. Do you want to now, give an example of that for people that, that don't do this every day in, in de- detail? Oh, sure. It's, Bill, it's as, it would be as simple as like, we will continue to buy X billion per month until, unless and until the unemployment rate is X, right? Now, that's a very tricky world to be in because there may not be any robust models that tell you that buying $120 billion of stuff every month for 12 or 24 months actually reduces the unemployment rate. I mean, sure, it'll serve to keep financial conditions easy, but there's no really, you know, robust linkage. Yeah. And then within that, another striking feature of the extraordinary amount of treasuries that the Fed's bought this year. I mean, if you think about QE2, gosh, when was that, eight years ago, thereabouts, seven, eight years ago, um, the average duration of the treasuries that the Fed purchased was 12 years. So is it any wonder that that served to to ease financial conditions because it was a little skewed further out the curve? In 2020, the average duration of the treasuries bought by the Fed is about six years, right, which is quite short. And, and I just wonder whether, it, it's a, to be clear, it's a very, very hard thing for the FOMC to articulate. But I just wonder if they're trying to figure out, well, they are trying to figure out how to link asset purchases to outcomes and related to which, even if you can't find a way to link asset purchases to outcomes, economic outcomes, not forecasts, but yeah. actual outcomes, Well, in the first instance, it means you are entirely reactive as the economic data comes in. But the second point is that signalling that they intend to extend the duration of their asset treasury purchases somewhat from six to six years to something longer might serve to buy them a bit more time. Of course, the counter argument is who cares the 10-year treasury as we speak is 89 basis points. Who cares? You know, the market's doing, <laughs> the market is yeah. doing the Fed's job for it by holding long-term interest rates down. But look, I think we've got a, you know, we've got a potential tweak coming up this week to the Fed's operational guidance and we all need to pay attention to that because let's face it, we, we talk and sometimes joke about FOMO, but there's only 17 days to go. And, I, and in 2020 for all sorts of investors and they just can't wait to get to that 31st of December NAV cutoff and just put this awful year behind them. But it does mean over the next two weeks, if people are a little bit light on risk and the Fed comes in and says, hey, you know what, we're going we're gonna to give you this more cowbell, then you see people just scrambling for everything. What do you think the probabilities of us getting that sort of uh, uh, statement or operational guidance, however you want to call it, from them? Well, I think they've been telegraphing as much for some time. 
Um, even Bernanke and Yellen said during the summer that the Fed's new operating framework was incomplete because they haven't tied asset purchases to, to outcomes. And again, it's very hard to do. But there's two ways of thinking about it. Firstly, what's the problem? Well, actually, there's two, two parts to this. So it's not just, Bill, what's the probability that the Fed's, the FOMC, to be precise, agrees to tweak its guidance this week? It's also second, do markets care? I mean, would, would it be a surprise? Would it be a dovish surprise? And, you know, given, so the first part of the question is, I think it's 50-50, maybe. It's not a slam dunk. I think there's some room for them to at least talk about it mm-hmm. uh, in the press conference and so forth. Um, and then they've been hinting for a long time that they were grappling with the topic of asset purchases and outcomes. They've been talking about that for many months. So I don't think it would necessarily surprise too many rates traders or macro types if the Fed did decide to give us more information on these asset purchases. So maybe not a surprise to Fed watchers, maybe not a surprise to macro types, but at a time when people are you know, believe it or not, some of the worst of the speculative, oh, that's, that's a bit unjust, some of the obvious speculative excesses have started to come out of the queues and the NASDAQ, you look at open interest in calls, it's come way down again. Yeah. I, I'm really, I, maybe it's all the Robin Hood dudes and dudesses booking profits ahead of year end. I don't know. Is that a new fact that we need to consider? But it's really interesting. Everyone's an expert on why calls have gone parabolic. Well, they've actually come off when you look at it against market cap and everything else. So I'm just wondering if there's one last surprise this crazy year for the stock market in particular. We just have a crazy blowout over the next 17 days because the Why Fed not? Makes- Why not? You know, I mean, it- Why well, not? So if, if you think about it from the Fed's point of view, you're tying, tying um, asset purchases to the unemployment rate, like you said Frydenberg's done in, down in Australia. Right. It is actually a very smart thing to do because what you're basically doing is, is as we all know, is you are giving the green light to Wall Street that, mm. hey, we're there, but you're couching it in terms of say, hey, we've got Main Streets back here and until you guys have all got jobs again, you know, we're going to be in here fighting for you. So, it, I mean, it's, it's as a strategy, mm. you'd almost be crazy not to adopt that policy right now. What's the risk of overdoing it is the executive summary, right? When you've got the greatest economic calamity in decades, you've got whole industries laid waste. What is the risk of overdoing monetary and fiscal policy right now? The answer is very low. Yeah. So if you approach all of this from a regret minimization perspective, it all leads to one road, or should I say one paddock, which is more cowbell. Yeah, right. And... And, you know, there's another side to this, right? And, and we all, for the right reasons, are thinking about the left tail of various distributions. You know, okay, we've had a V-shaped recovery and, you know, there's uncertainty, but by golly, you know, we're all thinking what can go wrong or what might go wrong. Well, there's another tail. There's always two tails to the distribution. What if this all works? Right. You know? What, what if it works? And I'm starting to wonder about that, that we actually close these output gaps, which often get revised away anyway years later. 
But what if we actually are able, as a result of this forceful policy, to eliminate labour market slack far quicker than anyone could have imagined? And then the bonus, and this is the greatest, greatest, greatest thing in 2020, is the speed of the arrival and delivery of the vaccines. Mm -hmm. It is the best stimulus you could have hoped for. Because if you look at previous pandemics or viruses or whatever, you know, getting a vaccine can take years. And we got a vaccine, we got a vaccine within months, which is phenomenal. And as more and more people take them, and they get rolled out in early 2021. My kids cheekily joke that given my advancing age, I'm now probably first or second in line, which I think is a bit unfair. But, but um, they, 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 I'm sure they'll appreciate the homeschooling for the rest of their days. But, <laughs> right. the, um, but the, you know, we've got three forms of stimulus. We've got the monetary, we've got the fiscal, and we've got the vaccine. And, and vaccine, everything, yeah. and, and everything would be groovy if it wasn't for the valuations. They're so insane, and the behavior so insane. Now, again, none of that matters right now. I, I, I know that, but it's like if you could drink as much as you want and never got got hung over. I mean, that's basically what we're doing in the financial markets. We can take whatever drugs we want. We can drink as much as we want, and all we get is upside, no downside, and. There's no point in worrying about it this minute because it can't it can't really come into play. But I mean, it, I mean it's it, it's there. I, I I don't know. Again, I don't know when we have to think about it. But I just I can't talk about this like it's all unvarnished, uh, uh, Lee. Great, you know, because the, the, the these immense excesses have to matter at some point. Yeah. But I know that. But I also know that they're not going to matter in any reasonable, measurable amount of time right now. Well, let's think about that because maybe we should invert it. The first point, which is these heroic valuations, which may get more, more heroic. heroic. Exactly. Um, we don't know. But as, as Paul Jones put it in that marvelous video of the trader of October 1987, you know, you never ever short an upward sloping parabola. Right. But boy, if it ever breaks, you know, but we're on, we're on the parabola, right? right? We all know that. So we can try to be the cleverest guys in town and pick the moment when all of this exhausts itself which is a very tricky thing to do. Oh, no, but just to make, let me say one thing, because I'd like you to factor this in your answer. I, I, I'm not really yeah. trying to do that. I, I know what you're, I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about it like, oh, gee, I want to catch this. I'm thinking about it more like, because I feel that I know this is going to go on for quite a while still, I keep thinking about the immenseness of what might happen down and, and how to set up a mental framework for it. Not gee, let's wow. catch it. L let's gee, let's not get caught by it. Mm. Is, is it, you know what I mean? It's a different, it's a different mindset. No, I Roger that. And I was just trying to walk through it for the benefit okay. of this to know where we're the okay. three of us are coming from. But the, the point about inverting this, we can, 
play that dangerous game of like, when does the parabola, you know, or we can just say, you know what? We've got vaccines faster than anyone imagined. We have this tremendous stimulus. And yet companies that you would think would benefit from the arrival and delivery of vaccines have barely re-rated. And these are companies, and yeah, there's some tricky ones because it could be the better airlines and incredibly there are some very well run ones. Right. It could be airlines that early on raised capital or didn't raise capital at all. It could be airlines that actually have some of the toughest management in the world who have used 2020 to embark on restructuring that was long overdue Mm -hmm. and actually puts them in a better shape for the not just next year, but the next five or 10 in terms of market share and profit margin, everything else. And we can go down the list of companies. You think it's very odd that these companies had a bit of a blip and now they're just going sideways and they're leaking again. And it's like, you know, we've, we've all discussed this and thought about it, you know, the discussion about value is back and this great rotation, I think is nonsense, right? You know, people get caught up in labels. You know, value is not the value factor. And the three of us today can buy unbelievable global brands for what I think are unbelievable prices, unbelievable prices. So that to me is the flip side of protecting oneself against something that goes bump in the night. And we don't know what it is. We never know, except in hindsight, why a bubble bursts. We can point to all the initial conditions and we know them back to front. Because as our friend Jim wonderfully puts it, you know, in science, knowledge is cumulative. In finance, knowledge is cyclical. (laughs) Everyone forgets. Everyone forgets all the dumb stuff people do on margin and everything else. And then the tide goes out and everyone's exposed. So to me, Bill, if I was to say, right, I'm a little bit, edgy and nervous about valuations of some of these high-flying stocks. Well, the way I protect myself, and there's many ways, but if I'm thinking, okay, I need to protect myself in equities, I look at some of these great global brands which have restructured, which have turned out financing, which are well, well, well run and well positioned to thrive in any environment or may have actually increased market share, which is good for the bottom line. And that, to me, has dominated a lot of my uh, thinking over the past five or six months, as you know, and also helping clients think about some of these things. And, and again, for the benefit of listeners, you know, people say, well, what's all this got to do with macro? Well, you know, over the past three decades, macro has sort of been narrowly uh, defined as, you know, FX, rates, policy, equity indices. But if you go back to the early 70s, when macro was really kicking off. It's interesting to, um, to see how much, how much of the profits generated by the Steinharts, the, the Kovners, the, you know, the, the Soros's, of course, was actually macro views expressed in equities. Right. Mm-hmm. And related to which, of course, as a sidebar, if we take central banks at face value, well, there's not going to be much happening in short-term interest rates. There's not going to be much happening in curves, really, unless they make a mistake, uh, which means that people are going to have to take risk in other parts of the world and, I, or should I say, other asset classes. And, and by definition, more and more macro risk will, out of necessity, have to be expressed in equities. Yeah. But to be clear, look, you're right. 
none of us, none of our friends is trying to predict where it all goes pop. But I'd say that the surefire way to protect oneself against that is to understand that there are unbelievable companies out there available at unbelievable prices. They just have barely re-rated. And yet you know that if you imagine the world six to nine months out, the vaccine rollout would have been enormous. It would have been worldwide. The confidence would have picked up after what will be obviously a difficult transition, uh, growth-wise and economy-wise, especially in the Northwest Hemisphere as we move into 2021. But we're heading in the right direction. So I find it very interesting right now to look over airlines and certain hospitality things have to be very selective. So it's not about a factor. It's purely about specific companies that have strong positions. That's been the case since September. And the last thing which we may get into as well is that I think one of the outstanding reflation trades here, which will get me into all sorts of trouble with the ESG evangelists, is oil. Right. Yeah, no, I, well, you know, they, they used to call this value investing, what you just described. I was just going to say that you're making sort of a backdoor uh, yeah. recommendation. On, I mean, you're not saying buy value as a as a brand, so to speak. You're saying if I have a valuation on my side in a business, yeah. I think that is particularly well situated, whatever yeah. that may be then I can, I'm more likely to be able to write out the unforeseen curveballs. Correct. What I'm going to give up for that is day-to-day pats on the back telling me that I'm doing the right thing as my, yeah. as my stock picks, you know, do well for two weeks, do crappy for three weeks or however it plays out. You're willing to, mm-hmm. you know, you're willing to express your, you're sorry, you're willing to take a little mark-to-market, uh, mm-hmm. daily mark-to-market, a slippage, shall we say, uh, to be able to sleep at night. Right, that's it. I mean, look at look at the past week. I mean, I I must be missing something because I thought it's been known for two years that Iger at Disney was coming after Netflix, right? <laughs> Disney, yeah. how, he's been talking about it for two years. And you think, gee whiz, what a businessman, what a business. If they put their catalogue out there, and start streaming it, then, you know, good luck, Netflix. And you saw on Friday, Disney, what is it, 300-odd billion market cap, you'll you'll be able to correct me, and it's up 14%. Mm -hmm. I'm like, my gosh, is that that what the Disney Plus announcement's worth? And and fair play to Iger because he announced it like an Apple announcement. You know, they all yeah. do these promotional yeah. videos, the big theatre. It's like it's very, very, very savvy how they're trying to pitch themselves. But, you know, is the, when I think about value and compelling value and moats, I, look, I'm not going to provide any trading advice on Disney in the high $100 range to anyone listening in, but as a metaphor for what's happening, You've got Netflix trading at heroic multiples. You've got Disney, the juggernaut, coming. What do you want to do? Yeah. You know, do you want to say, oh, well, Netflix looks a little odds. Netflix is no longer overboard. I think I'll buy some at 500. Well, not if Disney's going to come and eat their lunch, you're not. Right? It's just simple examples like that. But you're right. It's not to get caught up in labels. It's to think about businesses trading at reasonable valuations better yet with a margin of safety that are going to be around for decades to come. And, and I'll give you another one. 
how would you like to invest with Sam Zell at book value? Right. Yeah. It's out there right now. Yep. And people are like, oh, I don't care. It's commercial property. No, no. You are co-investing with Sam Zell at book value. And it's got $25 of cash on the balance sheet and it's trading at $26. That seems all right to me because yeah. I'm not out there trying to keep up with Robin Hood. I'm not out there trying to keep up with Bitcoin. I don't expect to make 40% plus year in, year out. That's just not realistic. But if I can offset some of my exposure to this high-flying stuff and I can put my capital with someone who shockingly, like Sam, has seen several cycles, how do I feel about that? Well, I can sleep at night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so true, James. It's so, it's and so I, you true. Know, I can, and I know you've got other ones, uh, mm. examples yeah. that you like. And I, I would make the same case not to beat a dead horse, but you can mm. find the same thing in the mining sector where 100%. they've all turned their businesses around and now they're selling at eight, nine, 10 times earnings, paying a dividend. And at the same there time, you you've got some insurance built in on the the, the, the negative consequences of these policies. Absolutely. So, but, but it, it seems to me, for the, all the rifle shooters out there, which is what mm. we're talking about, rifle shooting, right. picking we things, yeah. for that to really feel good, so to speak, we need some sort of change in the in the way the market's behaving right now because you know value gets discarded and and active managers get fired, and so there is yeah. a performance headwind we're dealing with on a daily basis. People yeah. need to accept that, I think, yeah. going in right. No, that's that's dead right, and I think what we're sort of kicking around is not growth, it's not value, it's just quality and common capital. Sense. It's common sense. Quality, com- common sense, yeah. quality businesses that the markets may have overlooked in their rush to grab whatever's on Robin Hood or on fire <laughs> on fire today. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to overlook all these brilliant businesses that have seen many cycles, tight ships, because I don't want to miss out on the next momentum, darling. No, that's yeah. fine. That's that's bull market 101. But, you know, yeah. the longer it goes on, the more you think, well, you know, I wouldn't mind some of that other stuff. And let's face it, if markets keep levitating, well, actually, levitating is a bit, bit subjective. Let's assume markets keep going up. Well, you know, some of these things we've been kicking around will do fine. They're not going to be up 50 to 60 to 70%, mm-hmm. but they'll still be doing fine. Yeah, yeah, so true. Listen, James, you, you, we've, we've had this big debate um, yeah. And it's a debate that after we first spoke to you, uh, we had you know, the likes of Lacey Hunt and Russell Napier right. pipe in. And, and, and we've had this deflation-inflation debate going on. But what's interesting to me is you, you're talking about reflation um, and how reflation is a tailwind, it's a positive. And I absolutely agree with that. And, and that's something mm-hmm. that is our bad. We should have brought that into the debate sooner. But seeing as you brought it in, let's talk a little bit about the nuance between reflation and inflation and when and what you look for uh, when when good reflation turns bad, if you like, and, and becomes a problem? Yeah. Well, we don't know yet is the, is the very frank answer. We don't know yet. But put it this way, at a minimum, at a minimum, to, to keep with the US example, it would entail core and headline inflation being comfortably above two and a quarter, perhaps two and a half percent for, I'd say, the best for, part yeah. of the year yeah. for the Fed to even go, oops-a-daisy, we might have overcooked this. And 
you know, so it's a, it's a question of calibration. Now, if we miraculously eliminate labour market slack, and I keep coming back to that because that's obviously the key, far quicker than any, anyone imagines, then, you know, the odds go up a bit that in 2021 you see core and headline PCE in the United States, not just in the second quarter of next year, but well into the third quarter, perhaps longer, somewhere in above 2%. But it would take something extraordinary in terms of labour market supply and private sector employees raising wages, perhaps under political pressure, who knows, we shall see, um, to generate what I would consider um, out-of-the-box realised inflation. And, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that we've had not just 12 years, but best part of 25 years of central bank stimulus and we've had inflation targets or rough inflation targets for all that period. And we've rarely been able to generate higher realised inflation, rarely, not often. And even then something always happens and it falls down. Yeah. So to be clear, it, it, you should be thinking that due to base effects, core and headline inflation all around the world should pick up in the second quarter next year. It should pick up. But unless you have a very, very strong feeling about labour market slack and private sector wages in particular, then I think it's a little bit early to call for sustained higher realised inflation. It's a little bit early. Um, And then, of course, hand in hand, unfortunately, is even if inflation does tend turn out to be persistent at a higher level and the Fed Fed has that whoopsie moment, if you take the Fed at face value, then they're going to wait quite some time to make sure that this inflation overshoot is actually real. So as much as we might Mm. in next summer see higher core and realised inflation, perhaps a little bit more wage inflation, maybe the long end of the bond market starts to price a little bit differently, which would be good news because you're getting higher realised inflation and you assume higher wages. So that's a good recovery. Yeah. You know, this Fed is not wanting to knock it on the head. But there's a flip side to all of this. You know, when, when Jay Powell says, oh, we have the tools to, to combat high inflation, what he's actually saying is we know how to cause a recession. And that's not the day you want to be uh, overexposed <laughs> to some of these uh, growthy stocks. But that's, that's some distance away. So, look, I think we're coming out of an economic catastrophe to begin with very rapidly. We're going a bit sideways here. A lot of uncertainty, lockdowns, difficult new year. We all know that. So it probably means that the growth, the economic data for the first part of 2021 is not going to be great you're probably not going to see inflation pick up too much for a while. But then as you move through the second quarter, things start to pick up. And that's why I keep using reflation, i.e. recovery, as opposed to deflation, disinflation or inflation itself. I'm going to take it by degrees. But then to Bill's earlier point, there are investments available today 
where you can hedge against some of these unfortunate outcomes down the road, and whether they be miners who have restructured their balance sheets, been to hell and back, paying reasonable dividends with some of the toughest names in the business running them or, or other forms of hedges, including just commodities full stop. You know, there's quite a few things to own today if you're worried about, you know, reflation turning into inflation. Things that will serve you well if there's a regime shift. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, let me be precise. Things that will serve you well in reflation but and, also should if you go into the right. inflation. They work, yeah. they work in both environments. Yeah. And, yeah. and isn't it striking, guys? You know, so many commodity prices are breaking out. It's so interesting. Not all of them, but so many. And people get wound up. Everyone's an expert at 1770 while, while gold is rubbish. And then it goes back to 1900 and, oh, you know, you've got to buy, you know, it's just, well, it's, guess what? It's just range trading for the moment. But so many other markets are breaking out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a classic reflation cycle, so far at least, right? Classic reflation yeah. cycle. Commodities bust out. People don't understand why. Well, maybe things are doing a bit better than we thought. Well, James, actually, one other flip side to that is something that yeah. we touched upon in our first conversation. And you, you talk, we talked about the dollar, and mm. you you said that stop worrying about it. They're, they're everywhere. They just sometimes get stuck. Right. So obviously, what we've seen since then is evidence that it seems they are everywhere, mm. uh, and they're not necessarily stuck. And the world is right. swimming in them, which we kind of so. J just if you can update your thinking on the dollar and and the part or the extent to which that is informing this, this, this commodity breakout and, and how you see the dollar right now? Because it does seem to, the tide seems to have turned. I wonder whether commodities and the dollar are two sides of the same coin, if that yeah. makes sense. I mean, let's face it, you can't, you can't hope for any sustained move in, in various commodity prices, whether it be copper or to some extent oil, unless you simultaneously believe the dollar can weaken to some extent. Yeah, more dollars were liberated over the course of 2020, well, from April onwards, which is no, no great surprise. Um, a lot of the um, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking of the plumbing in March, April was off beam. Uh, to this day, so much of the discussion around euro dollars and everything else, I'm afraid, is just, just nonsense. You're getting, I'm afraid... Well, it's, it's a tendency these days, isn't it? If, if there's a complicated area that people struggle to fully understand, then there must be some conspiracy around it or something going on with Petro, you know, all that kind of stuff, which I can say, I, I should strongly say is best ignored. So what do we got? Well, every central bank in the world is very dovish as far as the eye can see. But one central bank is far more dovish than all of them. And that's the Fed, right? Maybe it's as simple as that. Right. And if people start to appreciate that the Fed, more than any other central bank, is making full use of their dual mandate by holding interest rates down and shoving liquidity out the door until they discover what maximum employment is. And by the way, just one, another sidebar. You know, the assumption is that maximum employment has to be somewhere lower than where we got to at the end of 2019. Yeah. Now, that's probably true. Yeah, that's probably true. 
but what if there's labour market shortages in 2021 and it turns out that the Phillips curve lives? You know, who would imagine, right? We don't know, but that's just a sidebar. But you have an extremely generous Fed compared to its peers. You have this obsession with CFTC reports about dollar positioning, which give you a fraction, a fraction of the true positioning in currency markets. And you have a dollar that keeps leaking most weeks. It's breaking out. And it's breaking out versus low yielders as well. I mean, you you know, to see the Taiwan dollar, I'm just, forgive me, I'm just going to type it up here, but to see the Taiwan dollar break out of what is it, a 15-year range, is quite a remarkable thing. You know, where are we going here? Yeah, actually, it's longer than that. You know, the Taiwan dollar is trading at a... Let me just check this. I'm going to say it hasn't been this low since the Asian crisis, but I may be wrong. And this is, you know, yeah, Taiwan dollar, just above 28 to the US dollar. We haven't been here since the late 90s. And I could go down the list of other low yielding currencies and it's the same pattern. And it's like, you know, something really profound is happening here. You know, and we've got all these breakouts and it strikes me that people are trying to fight it, which is weird. Yeah. So from a pure plumbing perspective, look, as we tried to say earlier in the year, you know, there's too much noise and and silly talk around the plumbing and how it works still. And the dollars, they get stuck. They are being liberated. We got a little bit of tightness in dollar funding markets through year end again, but we've had that every year end for five say, or six yeah, that's years. Nothing new, yeah, yeah. Right? And I'm sure it excites a few commentators, but bank treasurers and others take it in their stride. People who rely on short-term dollar financing, you know, know how to prepare. And the last thing you'd want to have happen to your portfolio at the end of this difficult year is to have a fumble with your funding in the last 17 days of 2020. You know what I mean? So I know there's a few things in motion, you know, cross-currency basis. We could go down the list, repo, you know, whatever. Um, I'm inclined to sort of take it in my stride. And my best guess is sustained dollar weakness in 2021. Now, I'm not going to win any prizes for that. But, Bill, there's something else that you mentioned, and I think we discussed it the last time, but we should revisit it. You know, who's going to digest all these treasuries? Well, it's interesting when long-end US yields picked up on the vaccine news, the Japanese came in in the most massive way, as I'm sure you've read. They just couldn't get enough long-term treasuries because currency hedging or not, great, get me yield, we understand treasuries. But I think in the back of their minds was less of a view about you know, 10-year treasury at 95 to 100 basis points, then, oh, what can we do to keep dollar yen stable, right? Now, I'm not talking about the Bank Bank of Japan. I'm just talking about Team Japan, who have done a marvellous job over the past several years of making dollar yen the most boring currency pair in the world. Yep. So, you know, is it about the treasury yield or is it about keeping the yen, you know, roughly where it is? But, um, you know, the, the broader point is, if you want to incentivize, let's stick with the Japanese investor, to roll over their exposure to treasuries or US credit or critically AAA tranches of CLOs, 
then you're not going to be able to offer them a higher yield for a while, particularly in US credit, which is why GPIF and Norrin Tukin are saying, oh, we're not rolling over at AAA CLOs. But if, on the other hand, you give them a cheaper dollar to offset the lower yields, they'll be back. But we're not there yet. And the adjustment in dollar yen, for example, required to entice the Japanese institutional investor back to US credit, well, I'll just say it's a fair bit lower than where we are tonight. Would you guess it's, it's five? Would you think it's a 5% or a 10% or just no way to know? It just We don't know yet. Okay. But, but put it this way, Team Japan has done the most marvellous job of late keeping dollar yen, you know, effectively pegged. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. I suspect it eventually heads below 100, but, you know, who knows how long that takes. They're going to mm-hmm. resist it all the way, I, I'd expect. James, there's one other thing I'd love to get your thoughts on it. And, and when we when we go through this transition yeah. from 2020 to 21, mm. uh, there's there's obviously there's a line in the sand here with regards Brexit. Um, yeah. And obviously you're based in the UK. Uh, you, when we look at all the posturing that's going on now, as we you know we count down the days now until this until this event happens after what six years of of talking about it. Um, first of all, shame on all of them for bringing it down to the wire, but I guess it was yeah. it was always going to happen this way. How do you see the outcome and what do you see for both sides next year as the most likely path? I think Arnold Schwarzenegger got it right. And he was interviewed in the Financial Times grant in May 2019. And unsurprisingly, the Financial Times, given their bent on all of this, asked him about Brexit. And Schwarzenegger said, Every single article that comes up on my iPad, I immediately erase it because it's all the same shit. Hello? (laughs) It's like a documentary that's going on too long. So if you can imagine the Arnie voice doing all of that, right? (laughs) And I think uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger had it bang on. Look, there's, there's a number of ways of looking at this. Firstly, the unnecessary drama, right? Unnecessary drama all these unnecessary cliffs. Uh, We've had a little bit of a development, you know, over the past 24 hours, but guess what? What we thought was a deadline is not a deadline. Well, that's been the case for four years, which is part of the problem, right? So there's no deadline. You know how these European crises work. You get down to a Sunday night at about 2 a.m., everyone's exhausted, they can barely talk, and there's a puff of smoke saying, oh, look, we've saved the day. And part of the problem here is that Merkel was a bit displeased with Johnson's internal markets bill, which was kind of meant to be a backstop if the deals failed, if the the trade discussion failed. So Merkel's letting Johnson twist in the wind a bit. But here's the thing. It's 2020. It's been a really, really difficult year. It's required enormous amount of government balance sheet, meaning taxpayer balance sheet, to keep things on an even keel. And for obvious reasons, the European Union does not want the UK to get away scot-free. They hope that it might be a very difficult period for the UK. The UK thought they were negotiating a trade agreement with the European Union. The European Union thought that the UK was negotiating to stay in the single market And then at the last possible minute, they realised they were talking about different things. (laughs) 
Now, we could go through all the, the, the different scenarios, but I think the parties here, as has been the case for many months, are incentivized to work out some kind of arrangement. And that doesn't mean a free trade deal, but it means an arrangement to avoid unnecessary instability. Yeah. So we might have another six months to iron out the fine details of this, that, and the other. So we have a breakthrough. Yes, we've agreed. We'll now hand it down to our staff to sort out the fine points. But let's cut to the practical chase. Nobody cares. Right. Nobody cares, right? I mean, we've had four years of this. And yes, some industries may struggle. There'll be congestion at the ports. The FT, The Economist, the BBC and, and Mike Bloomberg will be having hissy fits and jumping up and down about every little thing that goes wrong. So, for example, this week, you're seeing all the news about the catastrophe at the port of Dover and the trucks back up down the M20 ground. Yeah, to get the vaccine in and out. Right. And people restocking for Christmas. Oh, no, it's Brexit. This is what's going to happen. Trade. It's like, it's, it's just a bit silly. What I think, and it's impossible for me to be objective about it because I live here. Yeah. But when I try to be objective from a financial markets perspective, the unavoidable fact is that UK equities in particular have rarely been this cheap and rarely been this under-owned. Now, we can understand why, but there are some very great UK listed companies, some with a domestic focus, some obviously, if we look at the FTSE, with a global focus. Yep. We know that. They're broadly well run. Sterling, for all the huffing and puffing, remains under-owned as well. We all understand that. Where I come out is that I don't think you need much to go right, or dare I say you don't need the delta on the headlines to change much because it's all skewed to what can yep. go wrong. Yep. So you don't need much of a change here, I suspect, to generate a pretty powerful structural re-rating of specific sterling assets and also um, sterling itself. The currency, yep. yep. It's a long, long way back. It's a long, long way back. But the UK too has some extraordinary world-class technology companies. It has some obvious science companies, as we've seen over the past yep. little while. And, you know, it's interesting that when people thought that there was more clarity emerging on Brexit, the UK inbound M&A picked up a lot during the summer and autumn of 2020. There are a lot of inbound M&A deals. Now, look, there's a flip side to this. It is still possible that these talks fail, but they will fail from the perspective not of sour grapes or we want to stuff them. They will fail from the perspective of we tried really, really, really hard to make this work. We could not. We're going to work out how airlines keep flying. We're going to work out this and that because we don't want a hard stop. So we tried our best, it didn't work out. And obviously in the short term, that's not a positive for sterling yeah, yeah. assets. We know that. But then there's a technical point to this. And the UK, out of kindness, has given European financial institutions comfort on what's called equivalence in financial services. 
And given the importance of LCH ClearNet to the global financial system, you know, that was very generous indeed for any European institution who clears in London. Yeah. Unbelievably, with 17 days to go, Brussels has not given any hard binding guidance to European financial institutions whether equivalents will apply the other way, <laughs> which is extraordinary. Because if I was trying to imagine a way to really upset the plumbing of the financial system, it would be to mess around with central counterparties and central clearing. Or to tell people that you don't get any benefit from netting off your derivative exposures. Or actually, as of two weeks' time, you'll have to change your counterparties with whom you clear, you'll have to change your collateral arrangements, you have to do this, that, and the other. That would be very dumb. So I think we're getting a real-time reminder, yet again, that certain European institutions, and I'm thinking about the Commission in particular, really don't care about financial markets at yeah. all. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the clearing was was the place that, in a, in a previous conversation, you said yes. that that was the place you were looking at for, yeah. for potential yeah. trouble. I mean, it's just, it's so unnecessary, so much of this. But the the, the fact that over the weekend, these conversations between London and Brussels were extended I think does point to an element of the, the parties involved don't want to smash up. Yeah. I mean, of course, the Europeans expect that this will be a catastrophe for the UK. Time will tell. But I, I think it is correct to say that neither side wants a smash up. And again, it's very, very difficult for me to be objective about it because I've lived here for almost 22 years. But I do think that if the headline risk is removed for whatever reason, then my best guess would be a structural re-rating of specific sterling stocks and sterling itself might last for many years. Fantastic. Possibly. Now, do we want to talk about oil or Bitcoin at all? Or yeah, no, no. I, I, no I, I, we, we, Bill and I always try and save Bitcoin to last so that we can assume the fetal position under our desks. Um, oh, for, for all the for all the incoming, so but let, let's let's do oil first, and, and we'll save Bitcoin for last because that way we make all the Bitcoiners have to listen to the whole podcast. Down <laughs> <laughs> you assume? So, yeah, so, wait, wait. You assume any are listening to begin with? Well, yeah, that's, well, yeah but this we probably we, well. I say we've lost them. You've lost most of them. But, um, <laughs> but of course, <laughs> it's my fault. All but, of that uh, things are my fault. <laughs> James, let, let's you, you you mentioned oil earlier on, and and I did want to come back to that. You you, you mentioned it, so, so so let's talk about that because obviously, I mean, it's hard to think of an asset that's had a more extraordinary year than yeah. oil for many reasons. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's struck many of my clients as odd given what I've been writing about ESG and all those sorts of things for some time now, that in the teeth of all of that and this global economic catastrophe, I could for the past several months have been recommending oil and one or two oil stocks. And the logic is, is this. Look, there's no doubt that all these climate types and ESG warriors intend to destroy the demand for non-renewable energy. I mean, we all know that. And, you know, it may take them some time. And the other point being, of course, if we're aiming to reflate the world and get it going again and flying again, we're going to need a lot of oil, we're going to need a lot of caro, we're going to need a lot of diesel and all these other things, right, obviously. 
But I think that the the real impact of ESG and climate change discussions is that, yeah, ultimately they want to destroy demand for non-renewable energy, but first they're going to destroy supply because anyone who wants to start a new oil well or a new non-renewable project right now can't get funding. Right. Right? Well, they can get it privately, but they're not going to get it from, you know, any, any, uh, any large buy-side firm and stuff like that. And let's face it, any shale producer who's made it through 2020 is not about to rush out and turn on his or her taps. There's going to be some very strict supply discipline. And OPEC has even managed to discover some supply discipline as well. So when I look at all of this and I look carefully at product markets as well, particularly from the summer of next year onwards, and I say to myself, you know, I think, I think the oil market's looking all right here. And I think specific energy companies that have really focused on their businesses and balance sheets and assets are well-placed to enjoy that, that reflation trade as well as we go through 2021. So it's nothing terribly complicated, but it's looking at oil from a top-down perspective. It's looking at supply discipline. It's looking at the endless ESG and climate narrative and just trying to find good assets at reasonable prices that can help me, you know, muddle through that period. And to talk my own book, one company I've been focused on is, is Hess in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no doubt anyone could... I'm sure listeners could think of racier examples, but Hess has been the one for me because I uh, respect the board and know certain board members and think they're first-class thinkers and operators. And look, as we came through the autumn prior to the vaccine news, you know, Hess was trading per share for less than its stake in this enormous Guiana oil field that they're, they're developing with Exxon. And I thought to myself, well, you know, in the high 30s, when the known value of this oil oil um, uh, oil development in Guyana is forty dollars conservatively, you know I feel comfortable buying that. And then you get the vaccines, and it all happens a bit yeah. quicker. But just to think tactically, as most people in the oil markets know, there has been a very large buy through the market over the past week out of Asia, an oil importer fixing their costs for 2021 because they think the world's going to reflate. So it's no surprise to me that the oil price has come off a little bit because this flow, this hedging flow, is now complete. And obviously, Grant, given what's happening in the Northwest Hemisphere right now, given lockdowns, you know, you're not expecting Western energy consumers to jump in and buy more oil and other things right now. So there's going to be a little bit of an air pocket here. So I need to be patient. I've had the easy part of it, and now it's going to be, have to be patient. Yep. Yep. And the yep. same applies, frankly, for a lot of these other vaccine reflation trades, you know, or plays, however we think of them. You know, they had the re-rating, and now they're just doing nothing. So we're going to have to be patient here. But I think being long oil and specific oil plays ought to serve one pretty well as we go through 2021. And then we need to move on to the what? What, what was it called? <laughs> let's, let's just let's just just call it the crypto. B word. Let's call it the crypto. B word. Yeah, here's here's the thing. Um, I 
my founding clients were two of the earliest Bitcoin investors. And they're very, very sharp people who I hurt helped a lot in 07 and 08, which is why they were my first client 11 and a half years ago. They weren't buying Bitcoin in the thousands or the hundreds or the tens. They were buying it for dollars. Yeah. And they're good fellas. And they were working on the architecture of all of this for a long time, but I never frankly believed it. I really didn't. I thought the, the blockchain technology itself and title transfer and ledgers and everything else struck me as something that could be very, very meaningful, but I was never totally convinced by Bitcoin itself. And then you fast forward to say 2015 and all of a sudden every macro trader I know is involved or starting to get involved and talking up a storm. Now why? Well, it moves. And the, and the skills that you would have once deployed trading dollar yen, which would move four handles in a London morning, you know, those skills are transferable right. to trading something like Bitcoin that's like all over the place. And, and one or two of them even confided to me later that they made more money trading Bitcoin through 2017 than they made in their frankly spectacular macro trading careers, yeah. which yeah. I thought, gosh, that's interesting. Now, fast forward to this year. What's the big change this year? Well, you know what? You can put any, any valuation on Bitcoin you like, but obviously given it's trading at 19,000, there would appear to be more buyers than sellers around. And as tempting as it is to think that there's, and I'll say this euphemistically, there's a wee bit of hype around Bitcoin at this particular point. It is true to say that the institutional money is starting to arrive. Yep. And to be clear, I don't mean the hedge funds that have said we've got some and it should be in a portfolio. I'm talking about some remarkably conservative long-term investors who have over the past several months created or established their first Bitcoin allocations. And all it takes is one or two of these large conservative investors to decide right or wrong that Bitcoin ticks some of their hedging yep. box and it's off. Now, the other thing is, of course, that it, this is like Dolly N of old because you knew who the flows were, this guy's doing that, you know, you could see the big tickets going through. Now, of course, the turnover is a bit less than Dolly N 25 years ago. It's Bitcoin. But... Everyone knows when the so-called whales are putting through a trade. Yeah. I don't mean the name, but all the, the Bitcoin cognoscenti can see that there's some very big tickets going through. Yeah. So what am I trying to say? I, the institutional money is starting to arrive. It will probably continue to come through 2021. So I can be sceptical about Bitcoin for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think that the demand is probably going to win for some time to come. And uh, to my surprise, I or somewhat surprise, I discovered recently that I have indirect exposure to Bitcoin through, frankly, one of these very conservative but very good uh, real money firms. Now, that was a surprise, but there you yeah. go. It just shows 
how this is changing. But of course, that's the good news. The flip side of this is that some of the arguments that are being bandied about, about how central bank digital currencies somehow underpin the case for Bitcoin, I'd be very wary and very skeptical of that narrative because it's not true. Now, to be clear, if central bank digital currencies are about imposing negative interest rates, fine. I think the three of us could imagine a whole bunch of assets that could do extremely well if that happened, or should I say, accelerate further. So yeah, maybe Bitcoin gets dragged along for the ride. But I'd just be very wary of these assertions that central bank digital currencies underpin Bitcoin, because that's not the way central banks think about digital currencies. Speaking of that, speaking of that, it seems to me one of the risks that I don't see addressed when I yeah. when all the chatter that you can't escape on Twitter mm-hmm. about about this is it and, and and this is one of the risks that that kind of keeps me from wanting to participate. I mean, um, and, and that is, it seems as though the Chinese are kind of determined to move forward with the digital one, yeah. and since. A, a very large amount of Bitcoin appears to be held in a small number of addresses that appear to be in China. Mm. And, and uh, it, it, I wonder, it, it, is that not uh, a, a risk that one would have to consider or you'd have to convince yourself is not a risk of them deciding that they don't want the competition with their digital one and they do something specifically, it seems to me like they've made rumblings yeah. that perhaps they're, they're not exactly uh, Bitcoin friendly, which to me uh, could easily turn out to be a big deal. Uh, do, do you have an opinion about that? I, I don't think, as best I can tell, I mean, that's, that's the way we should always phrase any observation about the Communist Party of China, because right. unless right. we're on the Politburo right. Standing Committee... What's that? Yeah. And Bitcoin. And Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. But unless I'm on the Politburo Standing Committee, you know, any observations I make on what the Communist Party of China thinks that, you know, need to be um, taken with a grain of salt. However, I doubt that they're entirely enamoured with Bitcoin, but that's not the point. The point is that China's DCEP, as it's called, Digital Currency Electronic Payments, is the biggest pending change to the financial system we've seen in, well, this will sound a little dramatic, but I think it's the biggest pending change we've seen to the financial system since Bretton Woods ended. And to be very clear, there is nothing benign about China's Digital Currency Electronics Payment Project. There is nothing benign about it. And I've been spending a lot of time over the past three months in particular, actually, no, four months in particular, on this DCEP thing. And three Fridays ago, I was very fortunate to participate in a call. And it was a phone hookup under Chatham House Rules, and it had some extraordinary people on that call. And it was intelligence people, it was a very well-known central banker, treasury officials, all sorts of people. You know, won't say more than that, but people are on it. 
because a bit late in the game, key people have realised that as much as the Chinese and former Governor Zhou of the People's Bank said again today, oh, no, 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 no. Our DCEP is no threat to dollar hegemony. You know, no, no, no. It's exactly what it's designed to do. It's designed ultimately to do an end run around the dollar-based financial system. And people are realising, uh-oh, we need to have something to give people an alternative to China's DCEP, but we're years behind. Because given how rapidly this pilot program is rolling out, it won't be too long before, you know, huge chunks of the Chinese economy are using this DCEP thing. Let's call it a thing. And then not long after that, any foreign business operating in China might well be obliged to open a digital wallet in the mainland using DCEP. And I would think that ought to raise a few cyber concerns. So this is an end run or attempted end run around the dollar-based financial system with enormous implications. And it is the DCEP rather than Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency out there, which is why, which explains central banks' enthusiasm for central bank digital currencies. So to be clear, it's not Bitcoin that is incentivizing this central bank clamour for central bank digital currencies. It is a belated recognition of the intent of China's DCEP, and they are way behind the curve, but I hope for the sake of all of us that their progress towards central bank digital currencies accelerates, particularly in the United States in 2021. Now, of course, that all sounds well and good, and I don't know when the impact of all of this hits. I don't know when the impact of all of this matters. But of course, we should never, ever underestimate the determination of the Communist Party of China and Xi Jinping in particular. So I'm spending an awful lot of time on this DCEP. I'm listening to a lot of people. I'm understanding the consequences. I'm trying to sketch out for my clients how they should think about it, what they should watch and, and things like that. So it's not a thing that one trades, but it's something that one needs to be aware of. And I think of it as the biggest plumbing challenge that we've had in many, many, many years. It's basically an attempt to overturn the global financial system as we know it. Silence. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, yeah. yeah. No, that's look. That, that's um. It, it is the whole the whole digital currency landscape is extraordinary, and then obviously mm. the, the the gateway drug has been Bitcoin, and that's what's got people frothing at the mouth. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I I understand the case for Bitcoin. Absolutely, I do. I think anyone that that has spent years looking at gold archive understands innately what Bitcoin's all about. But there are plenty of questions that I have yet to have answered satisfactorily to me. So I'm I'm you know I'm I'm not a disbeliever, but I have I have skepticism about me. Yeah. But when but when you talk about this DCP um mm. and what it represents, it makes it kind of strengthens the, the fears I have about there being no way that Bitcoin can ultimately be allowed to coexist with these with these currencies. Uh, do, do, uh, am I reading that the wrong way or, or not? 
don't know yet because I think it's an iterative process. My best guess is that given the nascent institutional demand for Bitcoin, is that in the first instance, as people read more about DCEP and central bank digital currencies in the West, that that will actually serve in the first instance, right or wrong, to underpin the enthusiasm for Bitcoin. Right, right. right? That's my best guess. Ultimately, though, I think you're raising important concerns, ultimately. I don't know what the timetable is. I don't know what Bitcoin might reach in the interim. Yeah, yeah. But, but to be very clear, the motivation for central bank digital currencies is not Bitcoin, it's not crypto. It's China's DCEP because the West has finally woken up to like, oh, my gosh, you mean they're trying to rewire the global financial system while we're distracted? Yes, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And they're getting away with it, right? And by the way, that's part of the reason why they sort of gave Alibaba and well, Jack Ma in particular a bit yeah. of sanding with Ant Financial because you're not going to be able to operate this DCEP without the existing infrastructure that Alipay and Tencent Pay provides. Um, so I'm look, to be clear, I'm coming at China's DCEP, at least at the start of this year, from a cold start. But I've been reading extensively about it over the next four months once it was made clear to me what this project what yeah. is actually about. And, and look, so I, I believe me, I can understand uh, that, that might be, it might be a difficult period for Bitcoin if people eventually appreciate what this is all about and what's going on. But put it this way, if China's DCEP is up and running and it's the only means by which foreigners can do business in China, and then hopefully, hopefully we have some kind of dollar-backed alternative in the West, then hopefully, you know, we can rewire the financial system without too much trauma. But I'm not sure where that leaves Bitcoin. Yeah. Ultimately, I'm not sure. But I want to be really clear. For now, that doesn't matter. You know, it's like no, some of the other but, things but, we discussed. It, yeah, it, go it, ahead. Yeah. No, no, it does matter in the in this from this standpoint. <clears throat> if you own an, a macro asset like gold or Bitcoin yeah. or some of these things that yeah. are that, that that don't have day-to-day fundamentals. I mean, you can't say, well, I'm gonna go see what the um you know what the or get some idea of what what sell through is. I mean, you you can't you can't you can't get an edge on the price very easily by looking at the macro variables on a day to day basis. Hmm. So you own this, and you have to figure out you know do, how do you manage your risk? Well, position size yeah. is obviously one. Sure. So how do you own have a position size of enough of a consequence to make a difference if there is the risk at some point? that the Chinese are going to say, uh, we're not really very keen about this. And if that's what they decide, they will get their own way from given the fact that so much of it is held there and, and mined there. And, and so how does one, if you think that that is a risk in the back of your mind, which seems to me Mm -hmm. to be a legitimate risk, 
then how do you know on the day that it's down 500 or 1,000 or $1,500 that right. it isn't the start of that problem displaying itself? So that's the concern that I have is I know mm. I can't manage the risk. And when I know those problems are out there, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to, you know, do it. If I sell it the first time it's down 500, you know, I'd be doing that three times a day. Right. So it, it just, that's, that's the thing that, 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 whole, that, that gets in my way is some of the risks that are very tangible, it seems mm. and large, mm. I don't see much consideration. And the other thing I, I wonder about is, and maybe the, I should know this, but if we're going to be at the end of the Bitcoin ish or creation, or however you want to say mm. it, spawning, you know, sometime this year, uh, um, how, wait, wait, who, then who's going to maintain the network? Cause the miners that maintain the network get some vig for that. Who's going to do that? Yeah, I, I, I wish I had a good answer for that. Just to tease out a couple of your comments, Bill, I, I think most Bitcoin aficionados either know or anticipate that the Communist Party of China might not be the biggest fans of Bitcoin either now or ever. I think, therefore, what people might be worried about at some point is that Western democracies or Western Treasury departments or finance market departments say, hey, you know, this Bitcoin thing, we need to knock it on the head a bit and regulate it. Now, on the one hand, if, if we said, oh, they're going to regulate Bitcoin or we need more transparency on wallets or whatever they do, you think to yourself, oh, gee, that's a bit of a negative. But there's a flip side to it as well. There's mm-hmm. an alternative. Yeah. If you actually do the right thing and, and say that, you know, do KYC mm-hmm. on Bitcoin holders and everything else, maybe that serves to institutionalise the asset. I, I don't know. Sure. But to be clear, I think... You know, we're not there yet, perhaps. But, but to be clear, I, Chinese attitudes to Bitcoin, I think, I think are less a concern longer term than than some other democracies. But we shall see. But there's another angle to this which is fascinating, and it's Zuckerberg. It's Mark Zuckerberg. Now, I never quite sure what to make of him. Uh, and typically when they rolled out Libra, which was ironic in the extreme, given the name, he didn't give much thought to the political consequences. It was an opportunity for a Facebook stablecoin to provide a kind of digital passport for the world. I mean, it was fiendishly clever, but, oh, no, 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 we're going to move fast and break things. No, you're not. And he ran into a brick wall with global regulators and financial policymakers. But whatever, again, one thinks of Zuckerberg, he's a very smart kid. He's very smart. And he said, hold on a second, what else is happening out in the world? Oh, wait a minute. We might be the only company with a platform that can outrun Alipay and WeChat Pay, and therefore we might be the only company in the West that can provide the infrastructure rapidly to sort of be the offset to China's digital currency electronic payment project. Oh, so this is interesting to me. And you would have noted in a lot of his testimony in the latter part of this year how Zuckerberg 
has become this China hawk, right? Mm. It's very deliberate. And, and I say this only partly in jest. It would seem to me that Zuckerberg's first step to coming out as a US patriot is to first hate China, right? Because patriotism and Zuckerberg up until now, I've, I've struggled to reconcile those yeah. two for obvious yeah. reasons. But he thinks that he can help create the Western equivalent or the dollar-backed equivalent or something like that of China's dual currency electronics payments project, right? And I'm watching that as well. Now, I don't know what that means for Facebook's valuation. I don't know what that means for Facebook's earnings. But it is true that if the United States in particular wishes to rapidly catch up with what's happening with China's dual currency, uh, dual currency, oh, my gosh, that's such an old thing to say. That, that, sorry, time out. That, that reveals how old I am because I remember 25 years ago we used to talk about dual currency, uh, foreign currency, dual currency bonds in, in Japan. Yeah, listen, we, we, listen, we've all dated ourselves because Bill and I didn't flinch. Oh, power reverse dual currency bonds. Oh, gosh. Anyway, let's, so what I meant, young listener, was digital currency electronic payments in China. But it's a serious point. It seems to me that Zuckerberg has figured out that the only way the West can catch up is by using his technology. And he might be right. He might be right. But really what we're sketching out here is a profound change, or to begin with, a, a really intense competition between who run, uh, around who runs the financial system of the future. Are we going to have a dollar-backed financial system as we knew it, or are we going to have a digital Remnimbi-backed financial system with, quite frankly, all of the horrible problems that will entail? That's what this is about. So to be clear, very tricky to trade. I mean, really tricky to trade. Yeah. But we all have to be aware of what's happening as market participants. We need to keep an eye on it. I, for one, have set up all these alerts on DCEP on my Bloomberg, so I get all these headlines and I'm getting 25 a day. I mean, you know, they've now got the trial running in Shanghai for DCEP. Now they're rushing it out in other parts of China. You know, they're going for it. Yeah. Right? They're going for it because, frankly, up until very recently, Washington has been asleep at the switch. But it's, it's extraordinary to watch the, I mean, no surprise about Xi Jinping's breathtaking ambition on so many fronts. Yeah. But this one, for us, for those of us working in financial markets and think about asset allocation and everything else, I mean, I don't know about you fellas, but I don't particularly fancy opening a digital Remnimbi wallet in mainland China, given the data I would have to hand over. Yeah. And that's just yeah. for starters, right? Yeah. Assuming, of course, that was the only way I could do any transactions in mainland China. To be clear, I don't, but, you know, these, yeah. these are, to me, is a really important, difficult, complicated topic, but it's the biggest plumbing question I've been confronted with in my career. Wow, that's, that's that's some statement coming from you. I have to say, I, I just I just love the fact that we've sat here and chatted 
for two hours and your mic drop moment is to send everybody down a rabbit hole that could consume them now for months to come. Well, yeah, so we'll have to we'll have to come back and and revisit DCEP down the road and see where oh, it is. It's going to be a real barbecue stopper, Bill. I mean, you, you tried it <laughs> tried it a few dinner parties over the new year in Seattle. I'm sure people will be riveted. I'm sure, no doubt. <laughs> but I, but Grant, if I may, I I wanted to read you something that I that I think encapsulates so much that's happening in the world right now, and and dare I say, I think it's how the three of us and, and many of our friends think about stuff. And it's from a, a, an overlooked macro strategist of decades gone by. So just bear with me. I want to read this quote. I think that I am superior to the common run of men in noticing things which easily escape attention and in observing them carefully. My industry has been nearly as great as it could have been in the observation and collection of facts. What is far more important, my love of natural science has been steady and ardent. For my early youth, I have had the strongest desire to understand or explain whatever I observed, that is, to group all facts under some general laws. Almost finished. These causes combined have given me the patience to reflect or ponder for any number of years over any unexplained problem. As far as I can judge, I am not apt to follow blindly the lead of other men. Huh? I have steadily endeavoured to keep my mind free so as to give up any hypothesis, however much beloved, as soon as facts are shown to be opposed to it. And I thought those words were appropriate at a time when we have an awful lot of people big-dicking it and who are absolutely dogmatic in their opinions on all sorts of financial assets, as opposed to the perhaps safer route of pragmatism. Yeah. You know, and I, and I once met this fella in Seattle, and he had this motto, often wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> i got another story there. But, but those words I read out were from a very famous macro strategist called Charles Darwin. And that's from Charles Darwin's autobiography. And I was rereading it the other day, you know, as you do, um, whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and I just thought that is such yeah. a great way of thinking about investing, asset allocation. And, look, you know, I think one of the common threads of some of the most wonderful investors I'm so fortunate to work with and for is that they can be pounding the table dogmatic about something tonight and then they're out of it tomorrow morning. Now, how on earth do you do that? I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a, it, people take it for granted. It is a very great yeah. skill. Yeah. And, you know, exhibit A of that in, in decades gone by would have been Mr. Soros. You know, oh, famously, his back hurts. Right, I'm getting out of this, you know. Yeah. 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 But, but I thought that was a great way of thinking about what's happening right now and to try and be balanced and sensible and to just figure out ways to survive and thrive no matter what Mr. Market throws at you, no matter what a central bank's doing. Because let's face it, if we're able to stay in the game long enough, there'll always be something to do. No kidding. And, and I was, final, final thing, I, I promise. Um, I was thinking the other day, 
how did I how did I get to know Bill? And I remember reading his stuff. Gosh, it must have been in 1999, 2000, and I'd read it on the website. And I think, gee whiz, this is super interesting because it really, uh, Bill, I don't think I'd tell you this enough, but it really helped educate me about excesses and bubbles in markets. And it was extraordinary stuff to read your, let's call it blog, because it was a blog at the time. So eventually, Grant, I plucked up the courage to send him an email and, you know, da, 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 Mr. dear Mr. Fleckenstein, sir, and, you know, da, 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 I'd read your stuff. And I got the most moving, touching reply, which I framed. <laughs> it's been a motivation to this day. And it was very, very, very moving. And it just said, thanks. <laughs> was it spelled correctly? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> then it was for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> these days, I think it's so lucky. I think it's just TKS these days. Yeah, I, I, think I mean, it, I, it was a very special moment, and it really, <laughs> really motivated me to get more involved in financial markets when the big dog in Seattle says, thanks. <laughs> well, well listen, that's we, thoroughly embarrassing. Can we go now? <laughs> we, we, we began with a big dick. We ended with a big dog. And uh, and in between, there was, I mean, so much to think about, James. I, I can't thank you enough for that. That's, that is going to have people, once again, head spinning, and as I said, rushing off down a path to try and understand DCUPs. Well, it's, it's, it's as I said, it's a real dinner party conversation stopper when you start bringing up the DCEP. I mean, people just can't get enough of it, right? Oh. Especially well, uh, in lockdown. With, 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 with any kind of tailwind, hopefully the three of us can uh, can actually sit down to our own dinner party in person over at some of Bill's oh. expensive red wine and talk about DCEPs from a more educated oh. standpoint in 2021. How good would that be? Oh, yeah. now you're talking. Yeah. Now you're talking. Um, and I think... Bottomless, look, bottomless glass is a shove for you. Shove. Now there's a great <laughs> asset. Great <laughs> asset, great price. And there's been a few distressed sellers around and, and it's just, it's magic stuff, isn't it? Magic yes. stuff. Yes. But look, I, I, I'll get all shaky here now, but, but I think just we've, we've had this amazing year, another humbling, humbling year um, for me and I'm sure many of us, um, an extraordinary recovery, at least to begin with, which reminds us of the sheer power of coordinated monetary and fiscal policy. And I know it's very tricky, or not very tricky, but it's somewhat tricky tonight when we're recording this to, you know, we've got renewed lockdowns and everything else happening. It's difficult to imagine that we can have, you know, this reflationary impulse, if you call it, or tailwind can continue. But But I keep looking at my screen this week and last week thinking, man, the outlook for company X or company Y has improved its earnings guidance has gone up, and yet it's derating. Now, that, that sort of tells me that the, the reflation trade or the vaccine reflation trade, if you will, has not really started yet, right? And the one thing I'm, I regret that I'm remembering it now, Grant, because I meant to mention it, so forgive me, there's been endless debate over the years about the bond vigilante right? Is the bond vigilante dead or alive? Well, I think for various reasons, the bond vigilante's, you know, dead. But the stock vigilante is alive and well. And at the most basic level, 
we all could have learned a lot. I know I certainly learned a lot. Just keeping fully focused on the guts of global stock markets through 2020. I don't mean in March, April as much as through the summer when vaccine losers stop going down. Yeah. What's that about? You know, we've got all this, so something's changing. And so the bond vigilante might be RIP, but the stock vigilante is alive and well. And, and I imagine I'm going to continue to learn a heck of a lot from the stock vigilante as we move through 2021. Because as tempting as it is for highfalutin folks like me with a credit and rates and FX and macro background, you know, as tempting as it is to sort of say, oh, you know, equity markets don't understand anything. Well, actually, truth be told, they understand a lot. Interesting. Really, really interesting. Mate, look, uh, it's been a fantastic couple of hours and thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Bill and I have been looking forward to this since we kind of all agreed on it a few weeks ago yeah. uh, and it's exceeded, I think, every expectation we had. So, mate, thank you so much and, and all the best to you and the family for what remains of the holidays. So Merry Christmas to you and I say hopefully the three of us can get together in the new year in person. Well, that'll be a podcast and a half, won't it? <laughs> yeah. I'll only be able to use about three minutes of it. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a good solid three minutes. <laughs> no, but I'm grateful to you both. It's just it's just good fun to have a, a good old-fashioned chat and a free-flowing chat. And, you know, as we always say, just trying to be less strong and Merry Christmas and best wishes to you and your families and, 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 and all listeners as well. And here's to brighter days in 2021. And, um, look... I've already lined up for four vaccines, two in each leg, two in each arm. And as soon as they reopen Seattle, I'll be straight there. Attaboy. All righty, man. Attaboy. <laughs> Take right, care, James. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very See much. See you, mate. Bye. Right on. Well, Bill, uh, as always, when you sit and talk to James, you are left with so many questions along with all the answers you get. Well, following along on this, um, you know, digital currency, electronic payment system that the Chinese are working on will give uh, will give us something beneath the surface to focus on for the next uh, year or so. Yeah, because uh, yeah. Yeah, we needed that. Um, but to try to synthesize down what we just talked about for a couple of hours is rather hard to do. <laughs> yeah, listen, I, I think everybody's on their own with it as far as that's concerned. I mean, listen uh, to it twice, three times. I'm going to be editing this, so I'm going to listen to it several times. <laughs> Uh, you know, our thanks to James. He is he's an extraordinarily gifted thinker, I have to say, and and manages to communicate those thoughts in a way that still baffles me how clear he is about this stuff. So, you know, our, our thanks to James for for agreeing to come on and being so generous with his time because it's uh, it's always just fascinating talking to him. Um, we will be back. We're not sure when. We're not sure with who just yet, but we've got plenty of things lined up in the pipeline. In the meantime, though. Uh, do follow us on Twitter. You'll find me uh, at TTMYGH. And I am at FleckCap. He was, he shall remain so. Mate, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Alrighty. Since we're going to cut this part of the tape out, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know that uh, uh, agreed to come on with us. Bullshit. Yeah. Telling you the truth, it. mate. Wow. Wow. Now he's never done that. I don't, no. not to my knowledge, no. Uh-uh. Uh. Grant and I were happened to be speaking, and I'd, I'd said to him, you know what? <clears throat> I'd sent the email and small backstory on how I know him. But anyway, 
yeah. I said, Grant, it's been two weeks. He just blew me off. He didn't even respond. Yeah. Literally, later that day, I got an email back from him. and says, well, what do you got in mind? So yeah. that'll be a fascinating conversation. Oh, gosh, that's a good get. He is he's hard as nails. Yeah. But that's good. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.